0: Hi listeners, uh, it's Alex here. Uh, Just letting you know that today's episode is going to be slightly different. Uh, We actually had a guest lined up who uh, unfortunately was uh, too ill to uh, be on the show today. So what we're going to do instead is read out a recent article about Canada's involvement in Afghanistan written by Mitchell Thompson. It's a really great in depth piece, which I think uh, you'll get a lot out of. And I hope as well this kind of gives you a preview um, of some of the work that we do uh, in the written side of the Maple. Uh, I know a lot of listeners are only listeners to North Untapped and don't necessarily uh, read uh, what The Maple puts out every day. So I hope this will kind of serve as a a taster for you. And maybe you'd even be interested to go over to readthemaple.com and hit subscribe and sign up. You can either sign up as a free subscriber and get a free taster of our weekly newsletter, or you can become a paid subscriber for $7 per month and support our independent, 100% reader-funded nonprofit journalism. Thank you. The Truth About Canada's Involvement in Afghanistan by Mitchell Thompson. This article was first published on September 21, 2022. 2022 marks 21 years since Canada joined the US-led War on Terror and one year since the last US troops exited Afghanistan. Today, a review of first-hand accounts authored by those involved in the operation dispels myths about the, quote, humanitarian nature of the war and occupation. Afghanistan's long civil war has its origins in the overthrow of its monarchy by General Mohammed Daoud Khan and Khan's overthrow in the 1978 Sawa Revolution. The latter, headed by a revolutionary council led by Nur Muhammad Taraki, established the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. The new republic ushered in Argarian reform, school and hospital construction, new legal rights for women, and the nationalisation of key industries. In April 1979, CIA officials began meeting with Islamic rebel leaders, most prominently Gulbuddin Hekmatyar and Ahmad Shah Massoud, to organize a counter-revolution. Three months later, US President Jimmy Carter formally approved Operation Cyclone, a set of special operations aiding Afghanistan's Islamic rebels in coordination with Pakistani intelligence. In response to the CIA-backed insurgency, the Revolutionary Council requested military assistance from the Soviet Union. Canadian Prime Minister Joe Clark immediately backed a firm response to the Soviet intervention. In January 1980, Defence Minister Alan MacKinnon announced a, quote, contingency plan to deploy at least 16,000 troops to support NATO efforts, in addition to what Lee Sarty, a professor at Carlton University, described as virulent and swift sanctions. Then in opposition, Liberal leader Pierre Trudeau supported the sanctions, but he also lamented that, I don't think we can help the Afghan rebels militarily, because NATO, he argued, had seen an erosion of its coercive power during the Iranian hostage crisis. Still, once back in office, the Liberals escalated Canada's involvement in Afghanistan. In his memoir, Liberal External Affairs Minister Mark McGeegan recalled co-signing at the 1980 NATO summit a, quote, complete commitment to rearmament in response to the Soviet intervention. But as McGeegan noted in the footnotes, quote, our most direct contribution to Afghan defence was made secretly. According to his memoir, quote, the Reagan administration approached us under the table to ask us to collect the Lee Enfields lying around Canadian armories for use of Mujahideen in their war with the Soviets. I immediately agreed, and, somewhat to my surprise, the PM also agreed. I am sure it was but a small contribution, but at least it allowed us a way of sharing in the Afghan struggle. Under Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, Acting External Affairs Minister John Crosby in 1988 praised Pakistan's dictator General Mohammad Zia-ul-Haq for, quote, his leadership in assisting Afghan resistance fighters three years after he died in a plane crash. Canada's Joint Committee on International Relations, meanwhile, boasted that the Soviet army, quote, "...failed to reckon with the national spirit and independence of the people." The character of Afghanistan's resistance fighters was already fairly clear, Quote, "a favorite tactic of theirs the washington post reported in may 1979 was to quote torture victims first by cutting off their noses ears and genitals then removing one slice of skin after another" When the war drew towards a close in 1988, Canadian diplomats complained that the Soviet withdrawal agreement included no explicit plans for an interim government consisting of the Afghan rebels. Canadian peacekeepers, who were stationed during the withdrawal process, were already afraid of those same rebels. As the Islamists had refused to recognise any ceasefire terms, Captain Yves Generoux warned... UN peacekeepers had to carefully balance, quote, watching the Soviet troops withdraw without being caught in the middle. In 1994, the Taliban emerged from CIA-funded madrassas along the Pakistan border and captured Kabul in September 1996. The new regime immediately banned all non-Islamic political organizations and education for girls and launched a massive wave of torture, amputations, stoning deaths and public hangings. Still, at least one U.S. State Department spokesperson said there was quote, nothing objectionable about the Taliban's ideas. A senior U.S. diplomat similarly said quote, the Taliban will probably develop like the Saudis. There will be Aramco pipelines and emir, no parliament, and lots of Sharia law. We can live with that. A few months before the Taliban takeover consulting company Oxford Analytica observed that the oil industry was anxious to, quote, build oil and gas pipelines from the huge deposits in Central Asia through Afghanistan and Pakistan to the Indian Ocean. After seizing power, the Taliban's coalition began to fracture, and some of its warlord members assembled into the Northern Alliance. In 2000, US officials ruled out direct support for the alliance, even as the group's leadership counted CIA assets among its ranks. As the Globe noted at the time, quote, less than a decade ago, several of the newly favored rebel commanders who now lead the Northern Alliance took Afghanistan through one of its most repressive periods, when rape, pillaging, and highway robbery were endemic. Following the 9 11 attacks, NATO invoked Article 5, which states that an attack on one member state is an attack on all, for the first time. Soon after, the United States launched Operation Enduring Freedom to root out al-Qaeda from Afghanistan, after the Taliban refused a final U.S. ultimatum. To assist, Canada's then-Defense Minister, R. Eggleton, launched Operation Apollo, readying 1,000 soldiers and four warships to join the U.S.-led coalition. As The Globe reported in 2002, the initial round of US bombing killed 1,300 civilians with 1,200 bombs in just two months. Under pressure from Northern Alliance offensives and US airstrikes, the Taliban were forced to retreat in November 2001. Soon after, the UN Security Council passed Resolution 1378 to prepare a transitional regime consisting of the main US-backed non-Taliban forces, which were recognised at a conference in Bonn, Germany. Soon after, Northern Alliance leader Hamid Karzai was made interim president and UNSC Resolution 1386 authorised a long-term foreign military presence at the imposed regime's request as an international security assistance force. But in February 2002, photos revealed that Canada's Joint Task Force 2 commandos were already working hand-in-glove with US forces on the ground in Afghanistan. Then-foreign affairs minister Bill Graham defended the secret deployment in his memoir, claiming, quote, "...secrecy is what makes operations effective." Canada's subsequent addition of a battle group consisting of 750 personnel soon became, quote, an integral part of the Brigade Combat Team of the US 101st Airborne Division to assist in clearing out the mountain areas and wiping out insurgents. The battalion was led by Canadian Lieutenant Colonel Pat Stogram, who in November 2002 records to the Senate, directing, quote, three large-scale battalion-sized offensive operations, including, quote, the first combat air assault in the history of the Canadian Army. The operation took a particularly grisly turn in May 2002, when the Canadian forces stumbled upon a mass grave at Tora Bora, designated a shrine dedicated to those killed by U.S. bombings, according to the Washington Post. Stogren, in response, merely expressed regret that Osama bin Laden was not among the dead. Quote, we were hoping the big guy was there, said Stogren. On January 8th, 2003, as the US government prepared for the Iraq war, Canada's Defence Minister John McCallum met with US Defence Secretary Donald Rumsfeld to discuss freeing up American soldiers who were, quote, tied down in Afghanistan by placing NATO in charge of the ISAF. For the next year, Canada played a lead role in the operation in Kabul under the direction of future Chief of Defence Staff Rick Hillier. However, ahead of Canada's 2004 defence policy review, Hillier and the Liberals would push to extend the war into the once-Taliban-dominated south beyond the rule of Afghanistan's interim government. Former Liberal Prime Minister Paul Martin recalled approving Hillier's appointment, owing to Hillier's proposal for a counterinsurgency war in Kandahar and his support for a three-block war, a strategy drawn from US Marines to integrate humanitarian aid with formal combat. In more practical terms, Helier recalled proposing that quote, a whole battle group should be sent to Kandahar along with a reconstruction team. Immediately, military officials began planning to take over the war in Kandahar with the help of NATO Deputy Commander for Operations Ben Freakley. In the planning stages, Major General David Fraser recalled, proposals to, quote, "...minimize the level of death and destruction were sidelined. The Americans, Fraser said, were pushing us to capture and kill as many as possible." With Taliban forces hidden across the provinces, Colonel Bernd Horn wrote in his account, "...the coalition strategy meant wait for two to three weeks, all the while hammering them with fires. Then, when the enemy was physically and psychologically weak, to seize the objective areas." During the planning stages, Officer John Conrad described NATO's spring 2006 mission, Operation Mountain Thrust, as a sort of military chemotherapy in order to set the conditions for stability. Operation Medusa, which followed under Canada's leadership, was no more humanitarian. Across the operation, Conrad wrote, the NATO forces acted as a killing machine, regularly finding themselves knee-deep in empty bullet casings. According to Fraser, the Canadian forces in the region established a routine with the American military. Quote, A pattern of nighttime reconnaissance whereby, come morning, artillery and air support would flatten the area and the waiting company would move through the cleared space onto the next objective, which they would occupy and secure. Hillier recalled, The fight was so intense that we ran perilously close to being out of 155mm artillery and some other types of ammunition. Those guns, which we were fortunate to have purchased earlier that year, were at times firing more than 200 rounds each day. Lavoie said they were his key weapon system. In direct firefights, ammo expenditure was also far greater than anticipated. One troop of four fighting vehicles, the LAV-3, with its 25mm cannon, fired over five days nearly 16,000 of those 25mm rounds. Clearing the chest-high grape trestles of the Panjway District, advised US Lieutenant Ryan Edwards, meant carving up the region into ever-smaller rectangles and coating them with white phosphorus, referred to as Willie Pete in military slang. I'm a big Willie Pete man myself, Edwards told a group of Canadian soldiers as they advanced through the Panjway District. If the Taliban are brave enough to move through all that Willie Pete to get to me, I'm going to give them a free shot. In a 2008 op-ed for the Toronto Star, Canadian Corporal Paul Demetric warned that as part of Operation Medusa, the Canadian forces risked being remembered for leading a campaign of "...hating, killing, and destroying," he wrote. "...we respond to hostile fire by indiscriminate bombing and shelling of villages, killing innocent men, women, and children." We fire white phosphorus shells, a chemical weapon outlawed by the Geneva Conventions due to the horrific way it burns human beings, into vineyards where it was known Afghanistan insurgents were deployed. We hand over prisoners of war to Afghan authorities, who torture them, and we shoot and kill a two-year-old Afghan boy and his four-year-old sister. Operation Medusa's airstrikes alone killed dozens of civilians. By the end of 2006, according to the United Nations, the counter-insurgency war had forced nearly 80,000 from their homes, further swelling Afghanistan's refugee camps. Through Operation Medusa, one officer recalled, we destroyed infrastructure, tore up villages to trap the Taliban. We antagonized the local population, but we didn't rout the Taliban. A local farmer said, quote, The bombing and the fighting destroyed our mosque, our homes, and our vineyards. Taliban are gone, but so is most everything else. Haji Abdullah Shah remarked, They killed our children. They killed our families. Every canal has collapsed. Every field needs water. We don't have enough food. Predictably, this destruction created more enemies. We still think everyone approaching us wants to kill us, said Captain Ryan Carey after the offensive. We have no choice but to plan for a fight right till we leave. My platoon was 27 or 28 guys, and every firefight they'd have 100 at least, Edwards said. We would just take human waves of assaults at our position, one after another, after another. A 2009 Senlis Council report titled Losing Hearts and Minds in Afghanistan, noted that Canada's intervention has resulted in significant civilian deaths and local discontent, alongside a marked failure to improve the lives of the Afghan people. The country did not become significantly more democratic following Canada's military intervention either. Dr. Masouda Jalal, the only woman candidate for president in the October 2004 election, said the vote was, quote, "...massively rigged." While political parties were banned for fear they would promote an anti-Islamic agenda up to two-thirds of the national legislature was dominated by warlords. In Kandahar City especially, under the direction of Lieutenant Colonel Ian Hope, NATO forces set up Afghan development zones to "...create a shining example of political, economic and social success that other districts would quickly want to emulate." But those projects failed. The Canadian International Development Agency's $30 million plan to achieve improved access to things like drinking water and electricity, according to Jerome Klassen, did not appear to have any impact on the access of villages to infrastructure. In Kandahar, another report found, the schools Canada built were plagued by shoddy construction and the province remained the world's capital of polio. Instead, naked profit was the priority. In particular, rumours circulated that past plans to move natural resources through Afghanistan, once dropped by the Taliban, might be revived. In September 2004 and November 2005, Prime Minister Jean Chrétien met with President Saparamarat Niyazov of neighbouring Turkmenistan, flanked by two Canadian businessmen, to discuss the modernization of the Sayidi refinery. In January 2008, US Ambassador Tom Pickering laid out the invading army's real priorities to CBC News. Afghanistan is of strategic importance, a failed state in the middle of a delicate and sensitive region that borders on a number of producers of critical energy. While Medusa was one of the bloodiest offensives in the history of the Canadian military, the fighting and the civilian casualties did not cease during later operations. One month after Medusa, Hillier wrote, the Taliban were resurgent, but the top army brass had few disputes. They all saw the need for the reinforcements, said Hillier. We need more troops, more guns, and, a shock for Canada after years of peacekeeping, tanks. For years after Medusa, Lieutenant Colonel Shane Schreiber said, We were asked to keep track of body counts of Taliban by higher HQ. We replied that this was meaningless, often inaccurate, and it didn't matter, anyways, as it was not a measure of success. We were told to do it anyway. The coalition offensive in Herat in spring 2007 led to dozens of deaths, even as Human Rights Watch observed that government officials found no evidence of Taliban forces in the area. For 2007 as a whole, an estimated 6,500 Afghans were killed, up from 4,000 in 2006, including at least 1,040 civilians. The death toll continued to accumulate... According to UN estimates, over 8,000 civilians were killed in Afghanistan between 2009 and 2014. In February 2010, the Canadians joined the highly publicized Marja Offensive, killing more civilians before withdrawing its combat troops in 2011 in favor of a training operation. In 2014, the year Canada finally withdrew its training forces, there was a 25% increase in civilian deaths. As the Canadian forces exited and Operation Enduring Freedom officially ended, George Gangon, Human Rights Director for the UN mission in Kabul, expected things to get worse, telling Reuters, The situation for civilians in Afghanistan is becoming increasingly dire. In 2021, the year the last American forces exited, Afghanistan marked a record total of women and children killed or wounded. After the Taliban took back Kabul last fall, Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Sean Fraser was asked why the final exit of Canada's last diplomatic personnel was so frantic. Fraser replied, We haven't had a military presence in Afghanistan for the better part of a decade. There was a diplomatic presence there, but that didn't give us the logistical capacity to move people in the tens of thousands. The clarity of hindsight is a luxury. Then-Defense Minister Hajit Sajjan likewise defended the war. Quote, Everyday Americans, he said, understand that when our friend and ally was attacked on 9-11, Canada was there for America that day and throughout the entire Afghanistan campaign. As for the dead Afghans, the minister had little to say. That piece was written by Mitchell Thompson, who is a writer with Press Progress, an occasional radio producer, and a researcher based in Toronto.